Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and uh, in keeping with the great way that Senator Enzi runs his committee, we start on time here, too. Um, and as a matter of fact, Senator Cardin and I will defer our opening comments out of respect for you so that you can uh, make your introduction and go on about your business. But uh, you honor us by being here. We thank you for that. And uh, the floor is yours to introduce uh, one of our nominees. Thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to appear, appear before the committee this morning on behalf of Eric Ulan, the president's nominee to serve as the Undersecretary of State for Management. Uh, he's been my budget director. He's an excellent manager. He has tremendous historical knowledge and he's able to coordinate many efficiently. Eric was born and raised in Portland, Oregon and attended college in San Francisco. He remains loyal to his West Coast roots after graduating college, he'd actually considered teaching diplomatic history. While he never had a chance to pursue that interest, the opportunity to serve at the State Department in a role that supports the creation and execution of U.S. foreign policy will be a great privilege. He began work in the legislative branch in 1989 and served in a variety of positions, including running the office of the Senate Majority Leader and serving the Senate Assistant Majority Leader as well as now overseeing the Senate Budget Committee for the past four years. He is careful in that work, precise in his analysis, thoughtful with others, and dogged on behalf of his bosses and their goals. He's worked for and with Republicans and Democrats, senators and congressmen, and Democratic and Republican administrations. He's comfortable working across the partisan divide and building coalitions to bring legislation across the finish line. As a successful Senate staffer going to a significant department position, he will be an asset not just for the department but for Congress as well. His understanding of how we work, his appreciation for the challenges we face, and his ability to dive in with us as a partnership to find solutions for our shared responsibility on behalf of America's foreign policy. All that will stand us in good stead. A key to Eric's value for me has been his interest in very carefully learning how a law or process actually works. Examples include his facility with Senate rules and precedents and the Budget Act, our budget enforcement regime, and the reconciliation process. I've also mentioned his historical knowledge. He's always open to new information and new learning and reflecting it accordingly. I know we'll have that same ability and talent as he enters the executive branch to learn the operation of the department, the rules under which it works, how it interacts with Congress and partners across the executive branch, and how to best and appropriately carry out his responsibilities on behalf of the Secretary and the administration. We all know that the makeup of the Senate requires that senators cooperate with each other and provides many opportunities for senators and staff to both learn that lesson and then put it into action. I believe that experience will inform Eric's ability to work with the department's various stakeholders, including diplomats, the civil service, and partners across the federal government and internationally, and members and staff here at the committee and in Congress. Eric is also a careful manager who has had responsibility here in the Senate at several offices with budget formulation and execution, personnel recruitment and retention, and supporting professional development of his staff. The scope of the department and the challenges it faces might be larger than managing a Senate personnel office or leadership office 
or committee office, but I believe Eric's management style will be applicable at the State Department too. Eric can successfully handle the new challenges and opportunities that he will face, and I'm confident he will be a strong and capable undersecretary for management on behalf of the secretary and his senior team and for our diplomats around the world. So I commend Eric's nomination to the committee and urge his favorable consideration. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here. And as you know, you're welcome to uh, go and continue your other duties. I know you have an important meeting this afternoon at 2.30. And, <laughs> and, uh, but again, thank you so much for being here. And I think what the uh, ranking member and I have decided, we'll give opening comments for both panels now. Is that, does that suit you? Okay. Um, so thank you so much for being here. And, and uh, we'll see you later today. Yes, sir. Thank you. Now, the position that uh, Senator Enzi was just mentioning is vitally important to the functioning of the department, as he stated. Fourteen bureaus and offices report to the Undersecretary for Management, including diplomatic security, consular affairs, and overseas building operations. The Undersecretary is responsible for the allocation of State Department positions, funds, and any other resources required to implement the foreign policies of the United States Senate. In addition to making the trains run on time at the department, the undersecretary has a critical task of securing our people and families abroad. This is never an easy undertaking, but it, but it is particularly challenging now given the complexity of our current threat environment. Department is also in the middle of an extensive reorganization process, which will require heavy involvement and deaf leadership from the undersecretary. This committee has been concerned by some of the department's recent uh, management challenges and has tried to play a constructive role in making the department more efficient and effective through our State Department authorization bill. I hope uh, our nominee shares our goal of a stronger and more agile State Department, and I look forward uh, uh, to your cooperation uh, on the authorization bill should you be confirmed. Um, on the next panel of nominees, we have the Honorable John Bass to be Ambassador to Afghanistan, Mr. Justin Siberall to be Ambassador to Bahrain, and Dr. Stephen Dow to be U.S. Director of the African Development Bank. A more concerted effort is planned by the administration to address U.S. interests in Afghanistan through a more focused and more firm diplomacy in Af with Afghanistan's neighbors and others. Our embassy country team in, in Kabul must be properly prepared, equipped, and led to make the most of this new U.S. effort, US effort to create better outcomes that serve our national security interest. I believe Ambassador Bass has that experience, and I look forward to hearing how he plans to utilize our resources to meet the President's expectations. Bahrain is an important ally of the United States in the Middle East and hosts a critical military base for our forces in the region. Sadly, the country is also facing unrest amongst its majority Shia population against the Sunni-led monarchy, resulting in government crackdown of its dissidents. I look forward to hearing from Mr. Sibarel about his goals and the vision for U.S. engagement in Bahrain in this complicated political environment. The African Development Bank provides resources to developing countries that, if utilized properly, present opportunities to help those countries grow their economies improve their standards of living, which ultimately serves our, our U.S. interest. If confirmed, the U.S. Director at the African Development Bank, Mr. Dowd, would play an important role in representing United States interests at an operational level, helping to ensure money is spent wisely and protecting our investments. 
With that, uh, I'd like to recognize our distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for uh, scheduling this hearing. I want to welcome all four of our nominees and thank each of them for their willingness to serve our country in critically important positions. Uh, it is a, a great sacrifice for public service, and we thank you for that. And we know it's a family issue, that the family has to be supportive of that effort. So we thank the members of the family for being willing to share uh, your um, family member uh, with our country. Mr. Ulan, uh, it's good to see you, member of the Senate family. It's always nice to have a member. You, you get certain privileges, not all, but you get certain privileges by uh, your association uh, with the United States Senate. Uh, you've been nominated to a position of great trust and importance for the proper functioning of the Department of State that an undersecretary of management. This is, it is not a job that often generates flashy headlines, but is a job that's absolutely critical, often behind the scenes in a quiet way for the proper functioning of our foreign policy. And as I consider the challenges you face that I have been, I have been struggling over the past several months to understand the management philosophy of the department's current leadership. I am struggling to understand the administration's approach to the department's budget, management, reorganization, and personnel. There is a significant obligation on you as we consider your nomination to help this committee better understand how the administration is thinking about and approaching these issues and helping us to work through our concerns as we move forward. As I've expressed before, I remain deeply concerned that the administration's approach to reorganization of the State Department is a solution in search of a problem. It has the appearance of a pre-cooked and ideological-driven exercise. Both this committee and the Appropriations Committee have expressed our concerns and made it clear that the road to reorganization runs through Congress. I also want to flag a couple of issues where we've had concerns over the past few months, including the way the Department handled the Wrangell and Pickering Fellows, the suggestion that the Consular Affairs and the Population, Refugee, and Migration Bureau be moved wholesale from this department uh, to the Department of Homeland Security, and the apparent lack of urgency in filling critical positions, such as the Assistant Secretary for Diplomatic Security. I do this not to relitigate concerns with you, but rather to suggest that real pressing needs for proper management guidance at the department. When we see things like the department seeking to reduce its workforce through attrition, where critical functions and expertise are lost, it suggests an operation that either does not understand or does not care about using proper management tools to steer that process. So as I said, I have concerns about the management of the department. I am hopeful that you will be able to reassure this committee on the core issues of how you intend to bring to bear your experience in order to institute functional management and processes for the department. My overriding concern is that without proper management and leadership at the department, the United States is at risk of effectively leaving the stage as a global leader. The Department of State plays a vital role at the heart of our nation's foreign policy by maintaining our global stature, ensuring the security of our citizens, enhancing our prosperity, and supporting our allies and partners around the globe who share the ideals and values that are at the heart of what makes America a unique and exceptional nation. I trust that we would, you would agree that if the department does not function properly, the United States' role in the world, our national security is at risk. Your job, if confirmed, will be to see that that does not happen. So I look forward to the discussion that we will have uh, during this hearing. 
I also want to welcome the three nominees that will be on the second uh, panel. For Ambassador Bass, thank you for being willing to come back for a second hearing before this committee. And usually one is all uh, people can tolerate. So thank you for your willingness to continue to serve our country. Uh, I think the President has, has selected a very well-qualified person for this critical and difficult posting. I must express my concern, however, over President Trump's long-awaited announcement of a South Asian strategy last month, which was short on details and has raised many questions on what his implementation will entail. I diverge from the President on his proposed troop increase and think that this is a singular focus on killing terrorists, ignores the complexity of the situation in Afghanistan in the United States' interests there. Our approach to Afghanistan must be centered around a bold, renewed effort to forge a negotiated political settlement, working with the Afghan and regional actors. We also must spur progress on accountability for human rights abuses and an end to corruption, which undermines the Afghan government's ability to secure a suitable peace. These goals are the best long-term bulwarks against the risk that Afghan territory could again be used as a base for terrorist activities against us or allies. I will be introducing legislation shortly that addresses these considerations by boasting the United States diplomatic and programmatic engagements on peace, justice, and reconciliation in Afghanistan. I hope this committee will have the opportunity soon to have a full hearing on Afghanistan and South Asia, giving the pressing U.S. foreign policy interests in that region. Our ambassador to Afghanistan will be on the front lines of implementing this administration's strategy. And I welcome the opportunity to hear from you today about your priorities and perspectives on how best to approach this task. I believe that sustained diplomatic engagement by senior U.S. officials is needed now more than ever. We won't solve this conflict through military engagement alone, and our counterterrorism interests in Afghanistan are intertwined with political, economic, and social issues. So the diplomatic and programmatic efforts of the State Department of Afghanistan are critical, and our most senior diplomat in Kabul must engage personally and regularly to help move the ball forward on peace, justice, and reconciliation. Uh, uh, Mr. Sabarel for, uh, on Bahrain and the United States have a long-standing partnership and many shared interests, including confronting Iran's aggression, reversing the spread of ISIS, countering terrorist financing, and maritime security. I listened to the, pre I listened to the chairman as he expressed his concerns about Bahrain. Bahrain's a key partner to the United States, key partner. We have military interests, we have counterterrorism interests, and yet there are significant human rights concerns that we have of the way that Bahrain treats the Shi'i population. We must engage those issues to have a sustained partnership with Bahrain, and our ambassador must take the lead to make it clear that we can have partners that have very important strategic interests, but we also must make advancements on the manner in which they handle the human rights and protection of universal freedoms, such as the freedom of speech and assemblies. These developments that have occurred in Bahrain undermine Bahrain's stability, compromise its ability to be a security partner, and run contrary to U.S. interests. Finally, I'm pleased to welcome Joseph Dowd, nominee to be the U.S. Executive Director of the African Development Bank. Africa is a continent of great promise, but today is it presenting us with great challenges. I notice you have some interesting early history in, Afri in Africa and deal-making experience in the area of food, infrastructure, and transportation that are key priorities for Africa today. I believe that will suit you well for the position that you have been nominated to. I look forward to discussion with all four of our nominees.
We thank you all four for being here and for listening to long opening comments by both of us, but uh, we got it all out of the way, and now we're ready for you. And uh, so, Eric, if you would, um, if you take about five minutes to, to make your comments, any additional materials uh, without objection will be entered into the record. And with that, um, go ahead and present your testimony, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it very much. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, Senators, good morning. Thank you for the privilege of appearing before the committee. With me this morning are my wife, Kathleen, and my daughters, Bridget and Charlotte. My public service, as you mentioned earlier, has centered for many years on the legislative branch. And thanks to the courtesy of several members, we've all had the chance to see Congress up close as part of that extended Senate family. We thank you very much for that privilege and for the privilege extended to us from many different predecessors. I'm humbled this morning at the prospect of serving our nation as Undersecretary of State for Management. I'm grateful to both President Trump and Secretary Tillerson for their confidence in me and for nominating me to serve in this capacity. Our nation is now engaged in a robust conversation about her appropriate role on the world stage and how to confront the challenges that we face. The department serves to express the voice and vision of the President through the Secretary. If confirmed, I look forward to taking responsibility for the management family at the department. The 16 bureaus and offices for which the undersecretary is responsible provide the platform for our nation's diplomacy, including security, embassy construction, logistics, medical services, human resources, budget and finance, training, and many other critical functions. Our foreign policy must be carried out around the world at 275 embassies, consulates, and other missions on a platform that supports the President's foreign policy. While the Department does much very well, I know it also faces continued challenges in several areas which fall under the management portfolio. For example, the security of staff and facilities overseas remains an issue. The Department, with congressional support, continues a strong construction program for new, secure embassies and consulates with 133 new diplomatic facilities completed since 1999. Additionally, a consolidated security training center is under construction in Virginia to provide all Foreign Service officers hands-on training every five years. Both of these efforts have, and they will, save lives overseas. I expect to be particularly focused on staff and facility security during my tenure, if confirmed by the Senate. As with many government and private institutions, cybersecurity is a major concern, especially with the department's worldwide presence and extensive data systems. I'll work to ensure that the department has a modern and robust IT infrastructure that supports our diplomatic efforts and protects the critical data of the department. During my tenure as staff director of the budget committee, I've faced the challenges of working to harmonize specific department and agency budgets, along with congressional and administration priorities, inside an integrated budget framework. I anticipate the need for harmony, collaboration, and cooperation in this job too, if confirmed, including with Congress. The formulation of negotiation for and implementation of department spending rests in the office of the Undersecretary of State for Management. If confirmed, I look forward to working with partners inside the executive branch and here in Congress to bring the State Department's budgets into law and see that those laws are faithfully executed. Given the past challenges Congress has faced authorizing the State Department, 
I hope also that we can work together to write and enact a durable and long-lasting authorization statute to reflect shared priorities of Congress and the executive branch. Although the executive branch will be a new environment for me, I'm confident that the lessons I've learned here in the Senate will serve me well in my new role. During my decades in the Senate, I've recruited, assembled, and deployed highly qualified staff, created professional and legislative goals, identified partnerships and built coalitions, and worked strongly on behalf of other staff and other members. I'm excited to now work on behalf of the President and the Secretary in the Department and look forward to finding new opportunities for public service there. If confirmed, I will be committed to a continued partnership with the committee and Congress in support of a strong and capable department that effectively advocates for the United States interests around the world. Thank you again for the privilege of appearing before you this morning and your consideration of my nomination. Senators, I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you. I'll probably ask a few and then uh, retain the rest of my time for later. Uh, but thank you for that testimony. Uh, obviously, we've begun the process over the last several years of State Department authorizations. Um, we feel that it's important for us to, to do that and ultimately complete an entire State Department authorization. Uh, just uh, wondering what your thoughts are after spending decades on the Hill relative to that process. Senator, thank you very much for that question. And yes, over the years here, I know that this committee has worked repeatedly on efforts to bring State Department authorizations into existence. Democrat majorities, Republican majorities, Democrat administrations, Republican administrations. I think in my previous roles here on the Hill, I've always worked hard to be very supportive of the committee and its legislative efforts to authorize the full scope and ambit of department programs. And I expect that if I have the opportunity to serve following confirmation, that I will be robustly engaged with this committee as it works to bring a State Department authorization through the Senate, through Congress, and ultimately for signature to the President. So you and I have had uh, a good deal of interaction. And just on that note, um, sometimes staffers who've been up here for many, many years um, can take on an attitude that the senators work for them. And I've seen that um, happen in, even in some of our encounters. And so I think it's important um, for you to talk a little bit about that. Um, the culture at the department is not good right now. Um, there is not a lot of teamwork felt there right now. And having someone who um, takes on a temperament of, of uh, being very effective but sort of running over people in the process could be detrimental uh, to the organization. And I wonder if you might uh, talk a little bit about that here. Senator, thank you very much for that question. And I very much appreciate the reality that transitioning from the legislative branch to the executive branch as I said in my prepared testimony, will be a new venue, a new environment for me. I do know that I have a lot to learn, and I do know that some of the most capable teachers for that education process are going to be the very talented staff at the department. 
There are 16 offices and bureaus for which the Undersecretary of State for Management is responsible. And I expect that I will be going through a very accelerated education process in order to understand crisply and clearly their needs and opportunities for action, as well as their day-to-day -day responsibilities for creating and sustaining this very strong platform and prosecution of America's foreign policy around the world. As I said, I have a lot to learn, and I'm not coming in with a presumption that I not only know it all, um, but that I have learned it all um, as a result of the confirmation process and the education that I've received so far. So I'm going to enter this job if I have the privilege of being confirmed um, with big ears wide open, um, with an objective to learn as much as I can, as quickly as I can, on behalf of the personnel in our foreign service, our civil service, and certainly our locally employed employees around the world, um, in order to fully and successfully carry out the State Department's mission and objective of prosecuting America's foreign policy around the world. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, though, that, uh, that we all count on, we, we actually engage a great deal with the per person in this position. Uh, it's very important uh, that we have a good relationship with this person because there are congressional notifications that take place. In many cases, we want to know background and materials. We want to do that on a timely basis. And I guess I'd like to have you not just speak to the staff that will be underneath you, um, but just your interactions with uh, people um, here on the Hill relative to those kinds of issues that are important to us. And, uh, you know, once people are confirmed, um, sometimes they take on a little bit different uh, attitude as to how they deal with folks. So I wonder if you might address that. Senator, thank you very for, much for that as well. Um, and I agree. Um, I've had colleagues and friends over the years who've been confirmed um, and sometimes forget from where they came. Because of those experiences over the years, I think that, as I mentioned in my prepared opening statement, um, the emphasis on partnership with Congress is going to be omnipresent with me. To your point, this role has a significant um, continued interaction with both this committee, its counterpart in the House, and certainly the Appropriations Committees. And I expect that counsel of the Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs to be spending a fair amount of time comprehensively engaged with the Hill to explain operations and objectives and responsibilities and ways that we are recommending proceeding forward on anything from reorganization to our budget and spending priorities, to your point, required notifications and, and appropriate interactions, um, as well as seeking input, not just letting you know what's going on, but seeking counsel, advice, potential opportunities for direction and information to feed back into not just the execution of this role, but as appropriate, reported back to the Deputy Secretary and the Secretary as well. So I don't think that I'm going to lose sight, having been uh, a congressional staffer for many years, of the need and the value for a robust conversation and partnership with this committee if I have the privilege of being confirmed. Well, thank you. I have some additional questions, unless they're asked by others. With that, uh, Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Ulan, uh, I really much appreciate your, your testimony, uh, particularly your encouragement on the Congress 
passing a State Department authorization in a routine manner, uh, which I think would strengthen uh, the unity on foreign policy in this country. So I think that's a very important point. Under Chairman Corker's leadership, we have ma been making significant progress on that in the last uh, three years. Uh, we passed out of this committee a state authorization uh, this year that we hope will move forward. And I just want to concentrate on one part of that, which deals with reorganization of the State Department. A new administration is looking at potentially significant changes within the State Department. And as I said in my opening comment, it's critically important that, that be done in conjunction with the Congress. Uh, both our committee and the Appropriations Committee have already spoken to our expectations that there's going to be a close relationship in this process. Secretary Tillerson has testified before this committee indicating his commitment to work with this committee in a close manner. And one of the more uh, visible signs of reorganization is how special envoys are handled. And I want to compliment the administration in listening to us. There's been some correspondence back and forth. We've we have it also in our State Department authorization bill. And we, we are certainly consulting as to how the special envoys will be handled. Do we have your commitment that that close relationship, doesn't mean we'll always be in agreement, but that close relationship will exist between you, if confirmed, in this committee and the Congress on input as to how reorganization takes place so that the Congress is part of the process? Absolutely, Senator. I think, to your point, both the Secretary and the Deputy Secretary in conversations here at this committee have expressed their interest and willingness to interact with the committee as they go through the process with the employees of thinking through ways to more effectively prosecute America's diplomacy in the 21st century. And I certainly expect that to your point, if I have the privilege of being confirmed, to the extent, in addition to the responsibilities that the portfolio of bureaus and offices have that already require constant communication with Congress, uh, to be part of not just the reorganization effort by virtue of everything that the Undersecretary of Management is responsible for, but again, to be working very cooperatively, conversationally, providing information, seeking input and feedback providing explanations and rationales for the thought process that we're engaged in and potential recommendations about ways to continue to strengthen the ability of the department to execute foreign policy around the world. Thank you. Uh, there will be times as the ranking Democratic member on this committee that I'll be requesting information from you in order to carry out our responsibilities here on the committee. Will you respond promptly and fully to those requests? Senator, I expect that I will be responding promptly and fully to all requests, ranking as well as majority during dependency of my tenure, unless I am told by higher authority not to or modify the response. But my instinct, again, having been a Senate staffer for many years, is to provide as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, to the committee upon request, but as well continue a very extensive conversation with this committee, the House Committee, and our Appropriations Committee as part of the portfolio of what I'm responsible for, but also the effort underway by the Secretary and the Deputy Secretary on questions of reorganization. The um, Subcommittee on Foreign Ops has made its recommendations in the Senate Appropriations Committee on the State Department budget. Uh, the President submitted his budget 
the comments among Democrats and Republicans as to the President's budget as it related to the State Department was pretty consistent, a pretty different view. Do you have an opinion as to the resources that you need and whether the Congress is doing the right thing in providing more resources than the administration has asked for? Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, the legislation was reported on Thursday and courtesy of preparing for this hearing, I have not had a chance to sit down and review the reported um, proposals from the subcommittee from last week. Until, unless I have the privilege of being confirmed, sir, I don't have fully formed opinions. Um, I have read the budget justification for the submission for FY 2018 that was provided earlier this year. Um, obviously, how uh, a statute is enacted is a cooperative process between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Let me so ask the question in a slightly yes, different way. If Congress passes the resources, and it's signed into law, will you carry out the congressional mandate and intent through the, through the funds that we appropriate for the purpose in which Congress has appropriated those funds? Senator, if Congress has passed and the President has signed legislation calling for expenditure of resources in particular areas, absolutely. When I said that, um, earlier that I really believe in the need that laws be faithfully executed. That covers this question, I believe, and is one of the important responsibilities of the undersecretary if I'm confirmed. Thank you, I appreciate that. You're welcome, Senator. Senator. Let me check in the finance. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Ms. Euling, thank you for being here uh, because that means you're stepping up to take on a new task that's really important. Um, management of the State Department. I think Chairman Corker said it right when he said we've got some morale issues there right now, from what I understand. And uh, it's also important that you've been a former Chief of Staff to a Majority Leader and to a WHIP, and I got to work with you when you were Director uh, of the Budget Committee. As a Staff Director, you uh, did a good job and were effective in uh, not just your command of the budget numbers, uh, but also managing a team that focused on the Chairman's priorities at the time. So I've, I've seen you in operation. You know us. Uh, this committee is incredibly important in uh, the process of the management side, uh, as we've seen with the authorization bill. Uh, we got through the committee with the chairman's help. So that relationship you have with this place, understanding how we operate, I think is very important uh, on the management issues and, and beyond. I got two questions for you. One is with regard to security. I noticed in your uh, testimony, you talked about your interest in protecting, I think you said, staff and uh, facilities. And, you know, sadly, we live in a world of increasing danger to our, our Foreign Service staff and, and uh, those in country, uh, nationals and, and, and Americans. Um, in recent testimony, Secretary Torson has noted the potential budget impact uh, on the uh, embassy security issues beyond 2018. So my question to you is, is very simple. How do you intend to work with the Secretary and others to ensure that the Bureau of Diplomatic Security remains properly resourced in ensuring the protection of, of U.S. personnel, as you talked about, in facilities uh, in the context of budget cuts to the State Department's budget that have been proposed? Senator, thank you very much for that question. What I expect, if I have the privilege of being confirmed and working with the Assistant Secretary for Diplomatic Security, is to every day be reviewing our security posture 
and the support that we provide for security across all fronts at all our posts around the world, including seeking in conversations with Congress inside the executive branch with the OMB and others, that there be an appropriate amount of resources dedicated to security and then expended properly for security on behalf of our personnel. Security and safety will be one of my constant responsibilities that I will expend significant time focused on and advocating for appropriate resources in order to ensure that our foreign service officers and our personnel deployed around the world are in facilities that are safe, are able to safely execute their duties and have security for themselves and as appropriate for their families and loved ones is something that's gonna be a critical calling uh, that I'll work to follow through on if well, I, I have the opportunity to I think that's important, and I was glad to hear you talk about it in your testimony. And, you know, we, again, the morale question, question came up earlier, and I think that's one of the things that people are concerned about is even their physical security and uh, knowing that you're behind them I think will be very important. Um, you and I talked a lot about the Global Engagement Center when we met in the context of this nomination, and I told you my concern about State Department not seeking the funding to be able to effectively push back against uh, authoritarian regimes around the world who are using disinformation and propaganda more uh, meddling here in our own country, but also in fledgling democracies around the world. And, and um, you gave me your commitment in those meetings that you wanted to focus on that issue as well. And I noted that Secretary Torson did ask for the funding from the Department of Defense recently that we had authorized here in this body, and uh, I was really pleased to see that. And I appreciate Deputy Secretary Sullivan reaching out to me in the last few days, in fact, about this issue and ensuring that, uh, you know, they have a commitment to in getting the GEC stood up properly, both with regard to counter-narrative on terrorism, ISIS, but also with regard to pushing back on disinformation. Can you make a commitment today to us that you will indeed continue that focus of making sure that the Global Engagement Center works effectively to push back and provide adequate resources for that? Senator, absolutely. To your point, we did have a, a good conversation on this. I believe the mission of the Global Engagement Center is critically important to advocating the United States' point of view against both non-state and state actor propaganda and agitation against our way of life and the values that, that we represent. So no question that <coughs> if I have the privilege to be confirmed, be working to seek to, in any way that my portfolio interacts or supports the Global Engagement Center, in ensuring that we are robustly acting through the Global Engagement Center, as well as across a, a wide variety of platforms throughout the government uh, on behalf of the expressions of our values um, and pointing out um, some of the challenges that these other values being advocated for um, truly present to the world. Well, thank you. My, my time's expired. I just, I know it's very important to this committee. Uh, Senator Murphy and I did have this legislation that's now in law, and we want to be sure it's properly implemented. Every day there's a headline about some other aspect of this disinformation, so we, we appreciate your focus on that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Ulan, for um, being willing to uh, be considered for this post and for taking the time to meet with me and other members of this committee. I, I want to follow up on your last um, line of discussion with Senator Cardin because I, I want to make sure I understood very clearly what you committed to. Um, I'm a member of the SFOPS subcommittee of appropriations. 
Um, and so I voted for the $51.2 billion in funding for the State Department, which, as you know, is significantly more than the proposal submitted by the President and the administration. And I understood you to say that if you're confirmed that you will work to protect this budget um, and make sure that the expenditures are made as Congress directed. Did I understand that correctly? Senator, in relation to the question, again, thank you very much for your time and our conversation. Yes, if statute is brought into law and enacted and signed by the president, my responsibility, our budget office, our comptroller's office responsibilities to ensure that those monies do flow as called for by statute. So to the extent that the president, the administration, um, and the legislative branch have agreed upon appropriate funding, both at an overall level as well as what goes on in accounts and sub-accounts, and the money is to flow, the money shall flow. Um, I think it's important to raise this because there have been some suggestions and concerns raised about the administration um, using impoundment to actually not spend monies that have been um, appropriated. I know that in our office we've raced with several uh, departments within state government or within federal government concerns about money that had been appropriated and had not been spent and um, in order to try and urge that spending. Um, but again, you are putting to rest concerns that when you are at the State Department that you will not use impoundment as a way to prevent um, the spending that's been directed by Congress from getting done. Do Senator, I understand you correctly? Thank you for that question as well. During the preparation process for this entire confirmation and explanation of the responsibilities of the Deputy, I'm sorry, Undersecretary of State for Management and all the bureaus and offices for which I would be responsible, no one has ever raised with me inside the administration anything in relation to impoundment. There's a statutory construct about impoundment, as we all know, in the Budget Act, um, which talks about two different ways. Monies can be looked at by an executive branch as it goes about evaluating whether or not and how best to move resources forward, funded resources forward. As well, every year, as, as you know, as a member of the Appropriations Committee, the Appropriations Committee and the executive branch figure out ways at times, move resources around, pull monies back, reprioritize as it goes through the, the spending conversation, and again, jointly agree as to how money should be spent. So I'm not aware of any calling responsibility Good. or Thank demand you. that I'm going to be impounding money. Last point, Senator, if, if, if you may. That sort of question, implementation of my fall in my lane, again, I've not been told any of that, but the interpretation of the Constitution and the empowerment power and all that, that's not in the Undersecretary of State for Management's responsibilities. Um, it's my understanding that the Department of State is the only agency now within the federal government that has a self-imposed hiring freeze um, after the administration's freeze was rescinded. Um, is that your understanding, and do you think that's a sound personnel and management decision given the number of crises we have around the world and the continued concern about morale within the department? Senator, thank you for that question. I am not aware of the 
unfolding of the, the freeze policy in relation to other departments and agencies. In relation to the Department of State, yes, the freeze does continue. The Secretary has a variety of powers to address the issue while this reorganization conversation continues internally. And the budget conversation, the appropriations conversation for resources will continue with the Congress. My understanding is he has exercised uh, that power in relation to a variety of circumstances that have been presented to him. And in terms of staffing, appointments, nominations, and all that, I believe that the Secretary and the Department continues to work through recommendations for potential nominees ultimately to the Senate and to this committee. Just sent uh, a number of nominees to Congress last week, to the Senate last week. Um, the Deputy Secretary of State addressed this issue at his town hall last month in the department, saying that approximately 60% of confirmable positions either have a nominee, would have a nominee, or have individuals under consideration for them. So the, the department, as I understand it, its leadership based on public reports, is focusing on working through the system and providing nominees to the Senate for advice and consent and review. Um, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, congratulations and uh, thank great you, confidence in your ability to do this job. I'm delighted that the president has chosen to nominate you. Terrific. Thank you, Senator. In, in Wyoming, we have a veteran memorial. It's located on F.E. Warren Air Force Base. It honors 48 U.S. soldiers that were massacred in the Philippines during the Philippine-American War. Uh, this memorial displays the bells that uh, the Filipino insurgents used uh, to signal the attack on our U.S. troops. Uh, recently, the U.S. ambassador to the Philippines publicly pledged to move the bells from this memorial to the Philippines. The, uh, during the confirmation process for Secretary Tillerson, I'd asked him about this, and he stated, quote, uh, the bells of Balangiga are an important war memorial that holds real significance for many Americans, especially our veterans. Secretary Tillerson assured me uh, that he would support an inclusive process with the U.S. Department of Defense to ensure that Congress is fully informed and the views of local communities and veterans are fully respected when evaluating the management of war memorials. So uh, last week I sent a letter to the President along with Senator Enzi and Representative Cheney and to Secretary Tillerson as well. And Mr. Chairman, I ask unanimous consent that this letter to the President be included in the record. Not objection. So we sent a letter to the President and to Secretary Tillerson raising concerns about the U.S. Ambassador to the Philippines pledging to dismantle the Wyoming War Memorial. Uh, in Wyoming, we have strong tradition of never forgetting the sacrifices of our brave men and women. So the letter asks the President to direct the Department of Defense and the Department of State to cease any efforts to deconstruct existing war and veterans memorials. So my question to you is if confirmed, will you raise this issue with this member of our diplomatic corps and share with him the importance of protecting our nation's veterans memorials? Senator, thank you very much for the question. And this story is incredibly inspiring um, and a very significant aspect to your point of our World War II history and the work of our soldiers during that conflict. I do pledge that if I have the opportunity to serve as undersecretary of management as confirmed, if confirmed, that I will do everything I'm capable of 
to bring this information forward. I associate myself with the comments of the Secretary during his confirmation hearing on this matter um, and provide all the appropriate information that the Undersecretary of State of Management can, can provide in relation to this because it is an important issue, uh, I think, not just for you, but again, for veterans across our country. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and Mr. Ewing, congratulations on the, uh, on the nomination. Thank you, sir. I want to ask you a couple of questions in the uh, embassy security space. You talked about that as a key priority, should you be confirmed. Uh, you mentioned the construction of the facility in Virginia that's underway and look forward to working on that with you. There was an accountability review board that was done at the State Department in the aftermath of the loss of life at Benghazi, that horrible attack. And there were 29 recommendations that were made that the State Department should follow going forward to reduce the chance of it happening again. There are three recommendations that are not yet closed out. 26 have been closed out and implemented. The three that haven't been are all dealing with embassy security issues, um, actual improvements to physical facilities, full training of the additional Marine security guards called for in the ARB report. Um, this will be a responsibility, as you indicate, that you'll tackle, and I have two concerns. One, I'm concerned about the budgetary issues that have been raised before, should there be a significant reduction in budgetary resources to state as proposed in the President's budget, what that would do to the ability to deal with the embassy security questions. And second, there's an assistant secretary for embassy, assistant secretary for security. Yes, sir. Uh, as far as I know, there's not been a nomination forwarded to the Senate on that position. I wonder if you could address both the budgetary issues and your commitment to making sure we're spending appropriately on these security issues. And second, do you have any idea or information about when the State Department is intending, I'm sorry, when the administration is intending to forward us a nomination on the embassy security position. Senator, thank you for the question and appreciate you raising it very much. To your point, as I testified and in previous answers, I've indicated that I will be focusing a significant amount of time on security matters. And as for resources, as discussed earlier, I expect that I will be spending a significant amount of time understanding the need and advocating on behalf of appropriate resource levels, significant resource levels, on behalf of diplomatic security efforts for our 275 posts around the world. To your point, we have about 33 of those posts that are high risk, high threat. Um, we have an internal validation process for our presence and reviewing um, where we are and our security needs as we go through um, a regular look at where we are deployed. Um, and decisions about security um, are very important and flow through a variety of decision-making uh, methodologies that are all part of the responsibility of the Undersecretary for Management. So in addition to resources, ensuring that the processes are going to be followed properly and aggressively are also going to be part of my work. In terms of the Acting Assistant Secretary, my understanding is he's been uh, at the Department of State and the Foreign Service since 1987 that he served um, as the assistant to the Assistant Secretary of State prior, um, as well as running the, the HRHT um, operation in the past. So I believe, based on what I've read, um, that I'm very confident in the Assistant Secretary, Acting Assistant Secretary right now. But I do know that if I have the privilege to be confirmed, um, that I will be diving in to examine the leadership 
Um, but I have no information on where the administration stands in terms of a potential nominee. I expect that if confirmed, I'll learn quite a bit right. very quickly. I, I would want to have a follow-up conversation Absolutely. about that. I, I appreciate what you've said about, an, uh, about the acting, and I'm glad you mentioned that because sometimes, you know, we act as if, a, if there's a, there hadn't been a nomination, it looks like nobody's doing the job, and we have plenty of actings, and many of our actings do very well. However, um, there's also a degree of uncertainty about an acting. It sends a message if you don't fill a position. You know, we had acting administrators of the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Service for six and a half years. It's only the largest line item in the federal budget. That sends a signal that Medicaid and Medicare was not that important. And similarly, if there's not a nominee forwarded to the committee on this important security position, it kind of sends, it, it sends a signal in addition, the person doing the job as an acting might be fine, but it sends a signal that it's not a priority and it should be. I'd love to follow up on that. And the other thing, yes, that, just to let you know, is this is for later. When I tour um, as a member of this committee, I, and I go to embassies abroad, I always sit down and have coffee with first and second term tour FSOs, um, and I don't let the ambassador come, and I ask him this question. You have been you know, picked for this wonderful opportunity that's very, very hard to get. What's gonna make you decide whether to make it a career or depart early? And I'm always struck by how often the decision points are kind of management issues, like, I had to be intensely vetted for the security to get this job, but then to requisition a pencil, they treat me like I'm a potential felon, you know, in order to get an office supply. And so I, I may want to come and just offer some insights on some of these management issues that affect the morale of people who are doing great jobs or around the world, and I'd look forward to that discussion. Senator, I welcome that very much. And the internal process, for those of you who've reviewed the, the June report, points to constant examples anecdotally along those lines. So right. I'd love to follow up and be part of a continuing partnership Good. on this matter going forward. All right, thanks so much. Thanks, thanks Senator. Senator Murphy. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations um, on your nomination. Uh, the, the chairman referenced the morale issue at the department today, and I think it's difficult to overestimate um, a, a morale crisis at the Department of State today. I think we're at the lowest point in the modern history of the State Department. We've had scores of senior diplomats leave over the last six months. People that come back from visiting our embassies in the field tell me that there are even more mid-level and junior staffers who are planning on leaving. And it's not hard to understand why they perceive uh, this administration and this Secretary of State to be openly advocating for a fairly dramatic winnowing of authorities at the Department of State, a lack of interest in democracy promotion and human rights advancement, but it's also because of some very specific personnel policies um, that have been applied to the Department of State with an enthusiasm uh, that does not exist in other departments. The hiring freeze, for instance, which had at first applied to um, almost all government agencies, now still specifically targets the State Department. The freeze on promotions and the freeze on lateral moves uh, within the department is sending a pretty clear signal uh, to people who are there uh, that they maybe should look other places rather than make that long-term career decision that um, Senator Kane referenced. Um, and so you're going to be inheriting uh, a responsibility for staff management at a time when lots of your most important and most valuable staff are getting a signal that they should maybe find a career somewhere else. Um, in your preparation for uh, 
uh, this job and for this hearing. Can you tell us what you've learned about the plans to continue the hiring freeze, the freeze on promotions, and the freeze on lateral moves? Can you give us any idea for when those practices will end? Because if they don't end soon, uh, I fear that you are going to have a real vacuum of experienced personnel on your hands uh, sooner rather than later. Senator, thank you very much for that question. In my preparation for the confirmation process, uh, my nomination, and then preparation for this hearing, I have been given no explanation, nor has there been any conversation about a plan in relation to personnel. So if I have the privilege to be confirmed, learning what, if any, plan might be in relation to personnel will be part of the core calling, clearly in the Undersecretary of State for Management's portfolio. Human resources is a significant aspect of the responsibility that I have and the work that we engage in. Um, as I understand things, though, more generally, Senator, uh, from the Secretary and the Deputy Secretary, as they've worked through this reorganization process, one of the things they've emphasized repeatedly is that there are no predetermined outcomes. Um, and I think they've been true to that as they go about evaluating what employees point out to them as potential opportunities for more successfully prosecuting our foreign policy here around the world on behalf of the United States. Um, as I understand it, they've been very clear repeatedly. They have an open mind about how better to do the job of representing our values and our democracy around the world. And so I take that uh, declaration at its word. And if I'm confirmed, I expect not only to learn more about and participate in the reorganization plan, but then to very robustly engage with Congress to explain the thinking of the department's leadership, its goals, its objectives, and be in cooperation with this committee, um, as well as its peer committee in the House, in relation to the authorization bill, the appropriations bill as, as it works through the process. So I expect that there's going to be a, a very um, engaged back and forth between the department I, and I think you need to explain it to us, but I think more importantly, you're going to need to explain it to the people that work for you who right now are mystified uh, as to why the State Department seems targeted by these policies in a way that almost no other agency is targeted by them. Let me ask one more question. Yes, sir. Um, you are the third senior uh, level nominee to tell this committee that the State Department is going to consult with Congress on the reorganization. Um, we have gotten plenty of promises on consultation and no consultation. We just passed a State Department authors, a State Department appropriations bill um, in which we just simply guessed at what the State Department would look like. Um, the Deputy Secretary has still not submitted written answers to questions to this committee relevant to his um, confirmation hearing. So put a little bit more flesh on the bones. When you say that you are going to consult with Congress, you're saying the same thing that everybody else has, and yet no one has consulted with us. So what do you mean by that? What is the form of the consultation going to take? When can we expect it? Will we see a plan before it's announced? Will we not see a plan before it's announced? Give us a little bit of detail. Thank you very much for the question, Senator. And at least as I interpret my uh, obligation for consultation in relation to your question is that I would be expending a fair amount of shoe leather and time coming to the Hill to explain, as I mentioned earlier, the rationale, the ideas, the potentialities, the objectives, the goals of whatever reorganization recommendations that the Secretary and the Deputy Secretary as a result of all this feedback ultimately provide. Um, so in any way that I am able to at 
the Council and direction of the Secretary and then the Council of the Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs coming to the Hill to explain where matters stand, where the leadership is intended to go, and what role, if any, I play in that. Um, that's the flesh on the bones of my commitment. Will we see committee. it before it is implemented? Senator, I haven't been told much about any of that. If I can find an answer through this process, I'm happy to provide that to you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator Markley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, appreciate your bringing up cybersecurity in your initial remarks. Certainly, we've been very concerned about the, both the commercial hacking and the governmental hacking that's occurred by foreign nations and foreign forces, including uh, Russia and North Korea. Even the NSA has been, been hacked. I was surprised, therefore, that the special representative for cybersecurity was on the list to be eliminated by the State Department. Why would that be eliminated? And, and when you say that you are concerned about cybersecurity, how does that translate to a management initiative? Thank you very much for the question, Senator. In relation to the elimination of uh, the cybersecurity, I've not been briefed on any, any of that, but I'm happy, again, through this process to try to elicit what information I can in relation to that. For the responsibilities that the Undersecretary of State for Management has, including information technology, there are a variety of initiatives already underway in our information technology area to address questions of cybersecurity, including a risk officer being identified, a joint operating committee being established, and more resources being put towards the question of cybersecurity, both as nominal dollars, as well as a percentage of our IT spend. I expect that if I have the opportunity to be confirmed and working with the CIO to not only reinforce those efforts, but to elicit from them additional recommendations to continue to harden and defend the department, which suffers millions of efforts every year on the cyber front to attack and, and penetrate our defenses um, in an effort to enhance the, the stability and protection of the IT platform for all the employees. We have about a little over 100,000 uh, points of contact, um, I guess is the best way to put it, uh, computers hooked up to our network. Um, and so ensuring that all our employees are able to interact with each other on a platform that's stable and secure is going to be something that, as I mentioned in my prepared statement, I want to spend a fair amount of time on. Finally, Senator, there's the potentiality of partnering with the private sector to elicit best practices and work from them that might benefit the Department of State and across the government um, throughout all our platforms. Hopefully, there's the ability to also seek out and work in cooperation with the private sector as well to assist in this effort. So I look forward to, if I'm confirmed, diving in on this as well uh, inside the Department of State. Well, I certainly encourage that uh, because 100,000 points of contact is 100,000 points of vulnerability. Uh, and um, privacy, confidentiality is so important to diplomatic uh, conversations. Um, my, my colleague mentioned the freeze on personnel, the, and uh, you and I talked about the hiring of eligible family members, educational fe fellowships, uh, also uh, civil service promotions. Uh, and uh, as you answered him, I didn't hear your opinion. What, what opinion are you bringing to this? Is it time to end this freeze in the State Department? Senator, thank you very much for that question as well. I, in terms of my opinion, I don't have a fully formed view on the issue. 
Um, I am aware of a lot of feedback from employees, to your point, expressed by members through a variety of private meetings, as well as feedback that I've read and, and, and media reports in relation to this. Um, and so if I have the opportunity to be confirmed, I expect that I'll be learning more about why matters stand as they currently do and potential plans for addressing this in the future. Again, to my earlier conversation and my conversation with you, the Secretary does have ability to work through specific issues on personnel, even in relation to the freeze, has done so, um, and I expect would continue to. Um, but if I am confirmed, be diving into this to, to examine where matters stand, to see if I have an independent opinion um, and what the opinion of the department is that ultimately in conversation with you, working through this matter with the committee and, this, and the appropriations these, committee these, as well. These kinds of, uh, kind of basic pieces yes, have a huge impact on the retention of, of talent and, and morale and the capability of the department. Uh, but uh, mo moving on to two specific questions in the half minute left. Do you support transferring the consular functions out of the State Department to Homeland Security? And similarly, do you support transferring the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration to Homeland Security? I do not, sir, and I'm not aware during the preparation of this process uh, of any plans along those lines. I've read a lot of media reports, a lot of speculation, but nobody's told me that that's, that's a plan going forward. When you say I do not, you, you would like to see those stay in the State Department? Yes, sir. I think they are essential aspects of our foreign policy and our diplomacy. Those are some of the most significant interactions foreign nationals have with our United States government. Um, and it seems to me, at least as an undereducated amateur from the outside, that it is a natural marriage that they reside in the Department of State and that our consular officers and our Bureau of Consular Affairs conduct this work in conjunction with and cooperation the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, our intelligence community, and law enforcement officials. Because of course, visa decisions are also national security decisions, safety on behalf of the American people. But the Department of State, to me at least, seems to be the right place for these sorts of conversations to occur I'm, every I'm day. I'm delighted to hear that. I, I certainly support keeping them in the State Department. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Coons. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Uland, um, for your service. Um, congratulations on your nomination. I regret my schedule didn't allow us time to meet individually before this, but I hope we get a chance to work more closely together in the event you're confirmed. Um, and I'm also um, appreciative that someone um, with your seasoning, your service here in the Senate, uh, will be in a fairly senior role in the State Department if confirmed, because as you've heard from a whole series of my colleagues, there's real concern about communication with Congress about the uh, redesign. Um, so if confirmed, you'll have a central role in the implementation uh, of the redesign of the State Department. Uh, and I just wanted to drill down a number of the broader questions I wanted to ask about consultation with the FSO community and morale have been asked by colleagues. Um, and, and I agree, I've uh, recently visited four embassies uh, in West Africa and heard many of the same themes. Earlier in the year I was in South Asia, heard many of the same uh, themes. So let me ask you about two specific programs. Um, in meetings with foreign service officers, I've heard repeatedly um, about problems created by the freeze and eligible family members being hired. Um, often foreign service officers have spouses uh, with advanced degrees or with a deep experience in business or management or in operations or in state um, who could be assisting our efforts uh, overseas. But the State Department um, chose to freeze the program as part of the broader freeze uh, Senator Murphy was referencing. 
Um, if confirmed, will you work with this committee to explore ways to lift the hiring freeze for eligible family members um, and to analyze and understand the value that eligible family members of foreign service officers posted overseas have for our embassies, um, not just for the work-life balance and morale of foreign service officers, but for the reach and uh, effectiveness of the, of the foreign post? Senator, thank you very much for that question. And to your point, the EFM program appears to be an extremely valuable addition um, to all the work that our foreign service officers do around the world. Uh, to the earlier conversation with other senators um, in relation to the secretary's discretion in, in, uh, in reacting to the freeze when it comes to the EFM program, many waivers have been granted because of the value and importance of this program. So I do expect that if I have the opportunity to serve after confirmation, to be engaged in a very good uh, effort to fully understand both the EFM as well as the hiring freeze, potential plans, if any, um, that will be briefed to me if I have the privilege of serving, and then coming and discussing with Congress uh, the plan and approach in relation to the EFM program. Thank you. Um, let me ask one other that's in the same vein about President Management Fellows. Um, some of our most talented staff uh, have come from the ranks of former Presidential Management Fellows, uh, and I understand the State Department uh, suspended hiring from the finalist pool um, even to the extent of freezing the onboarding process for 35 uh, fellows who'd already received appointments for positions within the department. Um, do you think the department should be honoring its agreements uh, with these um, highly skilled and distinguished fellows? Um, and if confirmed, would you work to do so? Uh, and more importantly, frankly, will you commit to working with this committee to make sure that uh, the State Department is as aligned as successfully as possible with recruiting and retaining uh, high-skilled and high-performance um, staff. Well, thank you for that question as well. And in relation to PMFs, if confirmed to your point, uh, the portfolio underneath the Undersecretary of Management does have interaction mm -hmm. with this program. And I, I expect um, that I will have the opportunity to understand fully um, matters as they stand and in relation to the earlier question as well, what, if any, plans uh, for the future are. Um, to your point, more broadly about recruiting talent, as you know, the Secretary spoke to this issue in very broad terms last month, um, where he observed uh, the need for the Department to look far and wide for extremely talented and highly capable individuals to come to the Department of State and serve on behalf of our foreign policy. So I expect that, again, my portfolio will work very hard to support that goal and that objective, and I expect as well that the Department under the Secretary will be working with Congress for ways, to find ways, I should say, to support that work that he set out for all of us to, to do inside the Department of State. Well, thank you, Mr. Uland. I, I just, I'll close by imparting to you, as uh, my colleague Chris Murphy did, I think there's five members of this committee that are also on the Appropriations Subcommittee for State and Foreign Ops, and uh, it is September. I understand there is a very full menu uh, of uh, foreign policy challenges, uh, even crises around the world that demand the full engagement of, of the senior ranks of the State Department, but uh, I, I was deeply frustrated. We concluded our appropriations process without really having a, a sense of the direction of this uh, redesign, so I hope you will convey uh, a sense of urgency uh, about both the consultation and the forward progress. Um, I hope to be a good partner uh, in pursuing a balanced and appropriate and responsible um, 
effort at trimming some of the costs but retaining the vast majority of the uh, personnel and the programs of the State Department at a time when we need effective diplomacy more than ever. Um, I, I was struck at how long it has taken uh, to get this process underway, and uh, my hunch is that your confirmation might well contribute to advancing it and certainly to advancing communications with the Senate. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your patience. Thank you, Mr. Yulin. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. With that, we're going to move to the second panel. Uh, the record Thank will remain Chairman. open for questions until the close of business on Thursday. If you could promptly respond to those, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, thank you for willingness to serve in this capacity. And with that... Uh, Mr. Chairman, if I could, just for the record, I, uh, diversity in the department is extremely important, not for many, many reasons, not the least of which is our effectiveness globally. So I will be asking you some questions for the record as it relates to the Pickering and Wrangell Fellows and as to your commitment on maintaining and expanding the diversity within the department. Thank you, Senator. I look forward to answering any and all written questions. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. You. Absolutely. So the second panel, uh, if you would come up, we would appreciate it. Okay, today on the second panel, we have the Honorable John Bass to be Ambassador to Afghanistan. Mr. Bass is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, a class of minister counselor, has served in, as an American diplomat since 1988. He's currently Ambassador to the Republic of Turkey, a position he has held since 2014. He's also served as Ambassador to the Republic of Georgia from 2009 to 2012. We thank you for your willingness, to, uh, as we discussed yesterday, to serve in this uh, prospective capacity, and we thank you for being here today. Next, we have Mr. Justin Sibarel. Is that pronounced correctly? To be ambassador to Bahrain, Mr. Sibarel, a career member of the foreign, Senior Foreign Service, class of minister counselor, has served as an American diplomat since 1993. He has served as the acting coordinator and the principal deputy coordinator for counterterrorism at the State Department. He's also served at six postings in the Middle East and speaks Arabic and Spanish. Thank you for your willingness to serve. And lastly, we have Dr. Mr. Stephen Dowd to be U.S. Director of the American African Development Bank. Mr. Dowd co-founded AgSource LLC, a global agricultural logistics, transportation, and finance company. His prior experience also includes overseeing food aid operations and leading port infrastructure projects in Africa. Thank you for doing that and for your willingness to serve. We'll now turn to the nominees, and if, if each of you could keep your comments to five minutes or so, any written documents you want to have entered into the record, uh, we will do so without objection. And with that, Ambassador Bass. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, uh, it's an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Uh, it would be an honor to again represent our great nation overseas, and I want to thank the President and Secretary Tillerson for the opportunity to do so. 
Uh, I look forward, if confirmed, to working closely with all of you to advance our interests in Afghanistan, and I'll welcome frequent opportunities, as I have uh, during my past two ambassadorships, to consult with you. Uh, I'm grateful to be joined today by my wife, Holly, a career diplomat who also will serve in Kabul, as well as my sister, Kristen Bass. Um, and I'd like to also recognize and thank some colleagues, uh, some of who are here today, some of who are absent, uh, who have become family uh, during service together in challenging locations. Um, I've spent much of the past decade focused on curbing threats that terrorists pose to our country and our allies, uh, and I've had the privilege to support my colleagues in Kabul uh, through diplomacy uh, to broaden our coalition and sustain our coalition there. Uh, and if confirmed, I will focus on achieving the results we all seek in Afghanistan, a political settlement and sufficient government capacity to prevent its use anew as a platform from which terrorists can strike the homeland. I know many of you and many of our fellow Americans are questioning why the United States must continue to devote so many resources to this problem and to this country. Um, and I understand why they ask how it is we can afford uh, this when we have such pressing needs at home. Uh, I believe, however, uh, that we cannot afford not to sustain our efforts in Afghanistan. Uh, we don't have to guess at the consequences of choosing otherwise. We experienced them 16 years ago, and over the past three years after ISIS set up shop in under or ungoverned spaces in Syria and Iraq, uh, we've experienced the consequences there as well. Uh, and as the president has made clear, uh, we can't afford to shy away from tackling the challenges uh, that these terrorist organizations pose to us head on. Um, I'm not naive, obviously, 16 years into this, about the scale and complexity of the challenges we face. Uh, fortunately, we have a bit more to work with than in the past. We have a government that wants our help, increasingly listens to our advice, and is making some progress building a government that can provide security to most Afghans. Uh, it sounds like a low bar. Uh, but if you think about where Afghans started 16 years ago, uh, they've made some important strides forward uh, in some key areas, including health and education. Uh, it's a different country today. And importantly, uh, President Ghani, Chief Executive Abdullah, and the government are starting to make some important progress curbing corruption. Uh, I think having made more significant progress in this area in the past year than in the previous 15 years combined. Um, in seeking to fulfill my mandate, I'll follow the new strategy approved by the president. Uh, the goal here is a sustainable political outcome that prevents terrorists from using Afghanistan as a safe haven. Uh, we have to make clear to the Taliban that it can't outlast us on the battlefield and that the only path forward for them is through a negotiated political settlement. As the president emphasized, our strategy requires a whole-of-government effort. Diplomacy and focused development efforts will be instrumental to success. Uh, and a key element of our diplomacy obviously focuses beyond Afghanistan's borders. Uh, and I can assure you that if confirmed, I'll work closely with my colleague Ambassador Hale in Islamabad to improve Afghanistan and Pakistan's bilateral relationship, uh, which uh, fuels uh, some of the challenges we face in Afghanistan. Now, obviously, success cannot, will not be driven primarily by the efforts and sacrifices of Americans. Uh, 
we will sustain the support of our allies and partners. In some cases, we'll be asking them to do more as we go forward. I think it's important to remember and to acknowledge that our approach should not be misunderstood as a desire to occupy or remain in Afghanistan against the will of its people. Uh, we respect Afghans' fierce independence. We don't seek a permanent military base or bases there or a presence in Afghanistan that would threaten its neighbors. Uh, and I think that's an important piece of the calculation as we continue to reinforce uh, the diplomatic efforts uh, with other neighbors. Um, it's clear to us that the Afghan government has other large obligations to fulfill. Um, we can't build Afghanistan for Afghans. They have to do it themselves, but we're certainly going to work with them and encourage reforms that enables Afghanistan to be more self-sufficient over time. Government welcomes this approach. Uh, we saw after the strategy was announced uh, the Chief Ab uh, Executive Abdullah declared that nation building is our job. Uh, and I'll be working closely, if confirmed, uh, with him, with President Ghani, to help them uh, undertake that important work. Um, making progress has been hard. It will undoubtedly continue to be hard. Um, but I believe it's worth the effort and the investments because the alternatives all lead to worst outcomes for the United States. Um, and I would just note in closing, uh, one of the first priorities of every U.S. ambassador today is to think first uh, of the safety and security of the people who work for them, who serve beside them. Determining how best to achieve our key objectives while also protecting our people will be foremost in my mind every day. Uh, and if confirmed, I will ensure uh, that I do everything possible to spend whatever level of funding we have for Afghanistan wisely. Uh, in closing, I want to thank this committee for its support to the vital work of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. Um, and as I noted at the outset, if confirmed, I would welcome a candid ongoing dialogue with you about the challenges and opportunities we face. Uh, thank you again very much for uh, uh, the opportunity to appear before you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Cerbero. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Bahrain. I'm extremely grateful to the President and to Secretary Tillerson for the confidence they have shown in me through this nomination. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the Congress and with this committee to advance our nation's vital interests with Bahrain. I'm privileged to be joined today by my family, my wife Arnavaz, our son Samuel and daughter Emmeline. Our youngest son, Benjamin, is in school today. Ours is a true Foreign Service family, with each of our children born during one of our assignments in the field, Sam in Tunisia, Emmy in Jordan, and Ben in the United Arab Emirates. Mr. Chairman, uh, the United States and Bahrain share a long-standing partnership based on common interests in regional security and the friendship of our two peoples. Since the 1940s, Bahrain has hosted the United States Navy and is currently home to thousands of Americans attached to the U.S. Naval Central Command and the U.S. Fifth Fleet. The operational and logistical support that the Kingdom provides our military is essential to the success of our campaign against ISIS and enables our Navy to lead a 31-country international coalition that counters piracy, drug trafficking, and terrorism across 2.5 million square miles of ocean and seas. The United States works closely with the Bahrain Defense Force to ensure Bahrain has the tools and capabilities to defend against external aggression and strengthen cooperation with U.S. and other allied regional militaries. 
Mr. Chairman, as you are aware, the administration recently notified the Congress of the approval of a number of possible defense sales that will address critical needs in the Bahrain Defense Forces air, land, and naval capabilities, including the sale of new F-16 aircraft and upgrades to previously purchased F-16s. These new military sales will provide Bahrain with reliable capability and increased interoperability with U.S. forces. I look forward to the close cooperation with colleagues at the Department of Defense to continue to support Bahrain's armed forces to address shared threats. In this regard, we are committed to working together with Bahrain to ensure it is able to counter persistent threats from Iran, including Iran's training and supply of lethal aid to individuals and groups targeting the government and security forces of Bahrain. Success in confronting shared threats in the Gulf region rests in large part on the commitment of our close partners to work together towards inclusive and mutually supportive security arrangements. It is for this reason that the United States continues to encourage a rapid resolution to the ongoing dispute among the GCC states. If confirmed, I will work to support the efforts of Secretary Tillerson to assist the parties in resolving their differences. Enhancing our security cooperation with Bahrain does not diminish the enduring emphasis we place on human rights issues. Indeed, our counterterrorism and military cooperation with Bahrain is paired with a clear understanding that Bahrain's own long-term stability and, st and, st and security depend on it achieving political reconciliation and upholding its commitments to universal human rights. We continue to be concerned with government actions against nonviolent political and human rights actors and will continue to urge the government of Bahrain to take steps to ensure inclusive elections in 2018 and to advance reform efforts for the benefit of Bahrain's long-term security and our mutual interests in regional stability. If confirmed, I will work to ensure that we continue to have an open and honest dialogue with Bahrain on the full range of issues affecting our bilateral relationship, including human rights. Increasing American exports and jobs for the American people is a top priority for me. The United States and Bahrain enjoy a strong economic partnership highlighted by the U.S.-Bahrain Free Trade Agreement. Since that agreement entered into force in 2006, bilateral U.S.-Bahrain trade has more than doubled to $1.7 billion annually. More than 180 U.S. companies do business in Bahrain, a number I am committed to grow if given the opportunity. Bahrain deserves some praise for its efforts to end human trafficking within its own borders by developing a national referral mechanism, promoting a national anti-trafficking strategy, investigating potential trafficking cases, and taking steps to amend elements of the sponsorship system that increases workers' vulnerability to forced labor and debt bondage. There is more that can be done, as is indicated in the State Department's annual trafficking and persons report, including proactive identification of potential forced labor victims and increased prosecutions of forced labor crimes. This issue is very important to me and to this administration, as I know it is to this committee. Advancing our interests in Bahrain will be facilitated by the close bonds of friendship that have been, developing over, have been developed over many decades with the Bahraini people, beginning more than 100 years ago through the founding of the American Mission Hospital, which continues to serve patients in Bahrain today. Hundreds of Bahraini students come to the United States each year to attend U.S. colleges and universities, providing Bahrainis with a deeper understanding of American society and the American people. And more than 2,500 Bahrainis have participated in official cultural and academics changes over the several decades, including the Fulbright program. Finally, Mr. Chairman, ensuring the safety of the people who serve at Embassy Manama and the American citizen community resident in Bahrain will be my foremost priority if confirmed as ambassador to Bahrain. During my career in the Foreign Service, I have served across the Middle East, including in high-threat posts under persistent threat of terrorist attack. I understand the importance of prudent and proactive security measures to protect our personnel, as well as the need for close and open communication with the American citizen community to ensure their safety and security. 
Thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you today. It is a singular honor to have been nominated to serve as ambassador to Bahrain. I welcome any questions you may have for me. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for your testimony. Mr. Dowd. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Carton, and distinguished members of the Foreign Relations Committee, it's a great honor to appear before you today as the nominee to serve as Executive Director of the African Development Bank. <clears throat> for decades, I have worked in project finance, agribusiness, and logistics in developing countries, and if confirmed, I will marshal all my professional experiences toward bettering the African Development Bank and furthering U.S. interests. I would like to introduce my wife, Lillian, my life's inspiration, and our three children, Stephen, Thomas, and Andrea. Lillian is an attorney who previously served as a Deputy Attorney General in Delaware. Lillian is profoundly committed to combating human trafficking and child stunting and malnutrition, a commitment I share. If confirmed, I will search for ways to make the bank a forceful check on these twin scourges. My first encounter with development economics was as a teenage merchant crewman delivering Food for Peace PL-480 grain cargoes to hungry nations. I watched as the desperately poor struggled to survive and made the most of the grain we delivered to them. Later, postgraduate studies at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service allowed me to deepen my knowledge of development economics in the context of global issues. Since then, I have worked in logistics and finance on private development projects around the world. Therefore, I believe I am well equipped to address the challenges facing the African Development Bank. If confirmed, I would lead the effort to leverage the U.S. contribution to the bank in order to ensure that its finance efforts are used to the best benefit for Africa, that they are consistent with U.S. policy interests there, and that American taxpayers get a good return for their money. I will strive to open Africa to American investment and know-how and facilitate U.S. companies doing business in Africa. I will also advocate for additional efforts to, cur to curb corruption and abuses of power that inhibit Africans to live longer, healthier, better lives. Finally, if confirmed as Executive Director of the African Development Bank, I will work closely with the members of this committee and its staff and with other members of Congress to perform my responsibilities as effectively as possible. Mr. Chairman, I thank you for this opportunity to, be, to appear before you and the other members of the committee, and I look forward to your questions. Referring to Senator Card. Th thank you, Mr. Chairman. And again, I thank all three of our nominees, and thank you for your, for your public service, and thank your families. Mr. Sobral, I would like to start with, with Bahrain. Secretary Tillerson said in Bahrain, the government continued to question, detain, arrest Shiite clerics, community members, and opposition politicians, members of the Shiite community there continued to report ongoing discrimination in government employment, education, and the justice system. Bahrain must stop discriminating against the Shiite communities. Secretary Tillerson. Are you prepared, if confirmed as ambassador, that our mission in Bahrain will be open to the Shiite community to be able to have an advocate on behalf of their concerns against the Bahrain government? Senator, thank you very much for the question and for your interest in this, uh, this particular issue. Those remarks are from the Secretary's release of the International Religious Freedom Report recently. 
and absolutely, to answer your question, my mission would remain open to all voices within Bahraini political and civil society, as we have been, and I look forward to continuing that and being open to all voices. And I want it to be open to all voices, but the Shiite population has a particular urgent need. Understood. Yes, Senator. And you will keep this committee and be informed as to what you're doing in regards to that? I look forward to that opportunity, Senator. Absolutely, yes. Mr. Dowd, can you just share with us your commitment in regards to the operations at the bank or the member countries in fighting corruption, which is a major problem in that region? Thank you for the question, Senator. Absolutely, uh, you, are, you are correct that corruption is, is a scourge of the continent. It's pervasive. And I, I, although I am not on site yet and I don't really know that what the bank is currently doing in this regard, I will certainly advocate forcefully for the maximum control of corruption and, and um, malfeasance. I'm going to be asking all three of you, in your, if, if confirmed in your missions, to keep my staff informed as to your progress being made on behalf of good governance, human rights, anti-corruption, where you can all three play a major role. Ambassador Bass, you and I had a chance to talk about the fact that you're not going to have a lasting peace in Afghanistan unless the government has respected the rights of all the people of Afghanistan. But I want to ask you a particular question. I agree with your statement that we do not seek any permanent military bases in their country, referring to Afghanistan. Now, we've been there since 2001. 16 years might not be permanent, but it's starting to look like a permanent presence of American troops in Afghanistan. What is it going to take for us to be able to get our troops home? Do you really envision that you're, during your term of ambassador, assuming that you are confirmed, that we will be able to bring our troops home? Uh, Senator, thank you for uh, articulating one of the key questions uh, that we're all asking and, and have been for a number of years. Um, it's a bit out of my lane to, to offer an assessment on the military side uh, in terms of where a tipping point will come. I, I don't think it's realistic to expect that, uh, whether it's two years from now or three years from now, that uh, uh, we'll uh, uh, have a, uh, a much smaller military footprint. And I agree with that assessment. It's a very honest response. How do you have credibility with this statement that we're not seeking a permanent military base in Afghanistan when, upon your arrival, there will be more American troops arriving with you? Um, I, I think the, the key uh, aspect of that is what we are doing and will be doing, which is primarily to support the Afghan security forces to get better over time at taking care of their own security needs. Um, and if we're successful in doing that over time, there's less of a requirement for U.S. forces to be there. Uh, easier said than done. Uh, as I said, this is going to be hard and it's complicated. Uh, but I think that is our road to a smaller footprint over time, uh, hopefully through a negotiated political settlement. And it's through that settlement that I think we ensure that we don't have to have a permanent military presence there. And I think credibility is very important. And as you said, a smaller footprint over time still gives me less comfort that we don't have a permanent presence in Afghanistan of American troops. Um, Something that I strongly believe is critically important for Afghans' future is that there is an end, uh, a light at the end of the tunnel 
that we will be bringing our troops home from Afghanistan. And quite frankly, I don't see that in the game plan that has been presented. It looks like a permanent U.S. presence. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ambassador Bass, I appreciated you making the mention of corruption because Afghanistan continues to experience corruption really at all levels. Uh, systemic corruption in Afghanistan, it's a major threat to U.S. objectives, I believe, in that country to the point that the special, ins uh, the special in inspector uh, general for Afghanistan has uncovered terrible examples, as you know, of, of waste, of corruption, of fraud, um, in the way that reconstruction funds have been spent in Afghanistan. We talked about it here previously uh, in this committee. Last year, the uh, Special Inspector General found, quote, the United States contributed to the growth of corruption. The United States contributed to the growth of corruption by injecting tens of billions of dollars into the Afghan economy, using flawed oversight and contracting practices, and partnering with malign power brokers. So, you know, what is your assessment of the amount of foreign assistance that Afghanistan can actually absorb? And, and these are bipartisan concerns. In the hearing with the Inspector General's finding, I mean, this is not a partisan issue at all. This is an American issue with great concern. So could you visit a little bit about that? Thank you, Senator. Again, another key piece of, uh, of the challenge set and, and what we need to be focused on. Um, uh, I did note, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, an emphasis uh, during my tenure, if I'm confirmed, in ensuring that uh, we focus a great deal of our efforts on helping the Afghan government address this problem set um, and on ensuring that we're spending wisely, whether we have a lot of resources to work with or uh, not very many. Um, for me, the key variable is making sure we get an impact and a result for, uh, for spending the taxpayers' dollars. Uh, I think the, the key uh, is we now have a government that is taking this problem seriously in Afghanistan. Uh, just released a new set of measures under a, a term called the Kabul Compact, which includes uh, a lot of key reform efforts uh, they are committed to undertaking. And importantly, they've asked us to hold them accountable for results. Uh, and if I'm confirmed, I can assure you that'll be a top priority for me. No, I appreciate it because accountability is a, is a big issue for all of us. And then the oversight to make sure, as you said, to hold them accountable. Can you talk a little bit about what you could do to approve, improve our abilities, the ability of our government to just to oversee and to monitor this assistance? Um, well, I, th I think we're going to continue to need to be creative and thoughtful uh, and imaginative about how we do that, given some of the security challenges. Uh, obviously, I don't want to uh, put people in harm's way uh, unduly, um, but at the same time, I also want to make sure we're, we're getting results for our, our funding. Um, my understanding is we've got uh, some pretty thorough third-party monitoring efforts in place, uh, utilizing a lot of Afghans, uh, sometimes at risk to themselves. Um, but I certainly will want to take a fresh look at it to see if there are ways we can improve that. Well, you, you, you hit the key uh, word that I've been, my next, my little notes to myself is, what about the security? How has the security situation and violence impacted the effectiveness of our civilian mission? Um, it's definitely uh, uh, made doing our work more challenging. Yeah. Uh, it's harder for people uh, to be out and about in society. Uh, but uh, I, I think my colleagues have done a good job of finding ways to continue to interact with Afghans, whether it's uh, them coming to see us 
more regularly, uh, working through intermediaries in some cases. Uh, but as the security environment continues to change, we obviously have to adapt and change with it, whether it's getting uh, worse or whether it's getting better. Um, and I think that's a key piece of what uh, chiefs of mission are responsible for is to make sure we can do that. Because, yeah, I mean, you have a broad experience, a, a wonderful career. You've been a lot of places. So that, I mean, that's my question is how does the government then properly evaluate and monitor programs in countries across the world where there are serious restrictions on freedom of movement and a deteriorating security environment? Um, as I noted, I think uh, we have to be creative. Uh, we have to be thoughtful. Uh, and we have to adapt to conditions as they exist. Uh, and we have to learn as we go. Uh, and my sense is that we are doing that, um, and um, we need to continue to do that. Um, but I think most importantly, we need to make sure that we continue to have some degree of visibility on uh, individual programs, individual projects, uh, so that we're constantly evaluating uh, whether we're getting the results we should. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your willingness to serve, and congratulations to all of you and to your families as well. Um, my time has expired. Thank, thank you, you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all very much for um, your willingness to serve the country, and congratulations on your nominations. Ambassador Bass, as we, um, again, increase troops in Afghanistan and look at the, uh, the military conflict there, one of the significant um, pieces of success is the importance of our local partners on the ground. And um, one of the, the promises that we have made is that for those um, Afghans who help us in our mission there, that if they are threatened, that we will try and um, allow them to come to the United States out of harm's way. And I wonder if you would, um, if you can commit this morning to publicly continue to support the Afghan Special Immigrant Visa Program, and whether you agree that it's important that we keep this program in place. Thank you, Senator. Um, I think we have a solemn obligation uh, to support local colleagues who often uh, work for us, serve the interests of the United States at great risk to themselves and their families. Um, my colleague, Mr. Sibrel, and I both worked with Iraqis uh, who would tell us stories of uh, a two-hour commute in each direction with five and six changes of transportation to make sure that uh, it wasn't visible. Um, and I'm sure you've heard many of those kinds of stories. Um, and uh, within the, the construct of resources um, and ad ref to uh, a larger administration policy, certainly I'll be continuing to advocate that we do the right thing uh, by those people in Afghanistan who have been serving us. Thank you very much. Um, on Monday, the Pakistani foreign minister went to Iran and um, the news out of his meetings with um, Mr. Rouhani were that they discussed the importance of a political solution in Afghanistan. Can you talk about the role of the region in Afghanistan and, and in our potential to reach a political um, settlement there and how important the role of Pakistan and other countries are in doing that? Thank you. Um, it, we will not succeed if we do not have the support and cooperation of Pakistan's neighbors and the wider 
circumference of uh, significant countries in the wider region uh, who also have an enormous stake in the stability and, and relative security af of Afghanistan. Uh, I think one of the things working in our favor as we pick our way through this complicated landscape is that generally speaking, everyone wants to see the same result in Afghanistan. Um, it's not in anyone's interest for Afghanistan to remain um, a sinkhole of violence and, uh, and a safe haven for extreme terrorism. Uh, so the, the challenge we've got is to ensure that um, we've got uh, a common approach uh, among all of these countries uh, about how we achieve that result we all want to see and ensuring that uh, the neighbors uh, and the, this wider uh, set of countries continue to support the Afghan government in its efforts, uh, not simply to deal with the violence and the terrorism inside the country, but to also build that government capacity so that if we do get to a political settlement, there's a, a capable government that can negotiate with the, with the Taliban um, and then perform the basic functions of government on the other side of that. Uh, obviously, Pakistan has a, a key role to play. Uh, they've uh, uh, been, as, as we know, a, a source of uh, some of the significant challenges uh, in Afghanistan in, in enabling the Taliban to... Uh, uh, rest and refit, plan, coordinate attacks. Uh, so I think we've got a lot of work to do. And, and as I, I noted, I'm going to be working very closely, if I'm confirmed, with Ambassador Hale uh, and uh, uh, many colleagues here in the department uh, to try to change uh, the Pakistani government's approach towards this problem set and how they best see uh, a resolution. Thank you. Mr. Sibiral. You um, mentioned in your opening statement the fact that we have just approved a sale of F-16s to Bahrain, and you also pointed out the concerns about human rights there and how we address those. Um, during the previous administration, that sale of F-16s had been held up, and as I understand, there was a linkage to human rights violations as part of, part of that sale. Um, do you think we should continue to try and be um, look at tying what's happening on the human rights front to other um, military assistance to Bahrain or, or other aid that we give them? Senator, thank you very much uh, for the question. Uh, I think it's uh, absolutely vital that we pursue the broad range of our interests with the government of Bahrain both strengthening their own capability to defend the country from very real threats from Iran and others in the region and from terrorist threats, but at the same time, uh, never step away from our obligations to continue to hold a very uh, uh, open and serious dialogue with the government of Bahrain about conditions inside the country to include the promotion and protection of human rights. There are some cases in which um, we have uh, not been willing to uh, uh, sell the Bahraini government certain items, particularly with regard to crowd control and internal security, uh, and uh, those remain in place. But uh, the linking directly of the military sales, which get to the, uh, the you know, key element of our partnership to help Bahrain defend itself and also operate alongside U.S. forces, that's a very important component of our military cooperation, uh, to the human rights issue. Those just need to be brought together uh, um, in our conversation, in a broad-based conversation with the, with the Bahraini government, in my view. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
If I could on that note, uh, very good question. Uh, the I think that Senator Cardin had a conversation with them. Um, it's my belief that we should not try human, tie human rights directly to armed sales, but we certainly should work at it uh, side by side. These sales, by the way, are ones that were approved prior to the hold that was placed on sales to all GCC members as it, relate to the con as it relates to the conflict that exists right now between these countries and Qatar. So this was a previously approved sale, and I know there's been some misreporting on that. Uh, those, the sales that were discussed after the fact are still on hold and hopefully will help bring resolution to the conflict there. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to each of you. Uh, Mr. Dad, you're, you have a good fortune of being on a panel with two people whose billets are pretty controversial. And that means they get most of the questions. But um, l let me ask Mr. Sibrel, um, just on the, on the Bahraini question, um, I was in Bahrain only once, and it's now been a number of years ago, but obviously with the Fifth Fleet there, the situation in Bahrain is very important to us. They are facing a very real challenge of Iranian-supported efforts to destabilize the government, but they also have a citizenry that's 70 percent Shia and a, a wide perception in and outside the country that the Shia population there is not being treated well. So you're going to have a lot of instability if you don't treat 70 percent of your population well, and if you just try to blame it on somebody else, that's not going to go very far. My, my perception over the last few years is whether it's, you know, threatened arms sales or not, um, that, the, uh, that the human rights situation in Bahrain and the sincere effort to deal with and then make progress on concerns of 70% of the population, there's not really been much progress. I, I'd love to be wrong about that assumption. Am I wrong about that? Well, Senator, thank you very much uh, for your question. I think you've identified one of the um, critical challenges we have. On the one hand, Bahrain faces very real and credible threats from Iran. Um, and those have been voiced by senior officials in the uh, Quds Force uh, that have threatened Bahrain. We know of uh, Iranian training and equipping of individuals and groups who threaten the Bahraini security forces. There have been efforts to ship arms into Bahrain. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. And in mm -hmm. fact, in earlier this year, the State Department designated two individuals who are part of the Al Ashtar brigades, one of whom is resident in Iran who had been involved in uh, attacks against uh, the Bahraini state and the government. So there's a serious threat, there's a real threat there. At the same time, as you pointed out, um, channels and effective channels for political discourse for involvement in the affairs of the country are critical to ensuring the essential stability upon which our partnership must rest and ultimately for the stability and strength of the Bahraini state and uh, its relationship with its people. When I was uh, previously in my previous position in the Counterterrorism Bureau, we frequently emphasized with uh, partners and governments that there need be no contradiction between promotion and protection of human rights, of fundamental civil and human rights, and an effective security uh, uh, practices which protect the population. Um, and that's a point I will continue to emphasize uh, if given the opportunity and if confirmed as ambassador uh, to Bahrain uh, that we need to bring these two together to conflate uh, security um, and, and terrorism with uh, or to conflate rather uh, uh, legitimate political speech uh, with terrorism uh, is uh, to in, in, uh, potentially cut off channels for the kind of discourse that is required for ultimately a healthy and stable society. I think it's very important, and again, you know, it's important in and of itself, but with the Fifth Fleet presence yes. being so important and its continued 
viability long-term in Bahrain being connected certainly to the stability in that country, um, it really achieves a huge importance. So thank you for that. Um, Ambassador Bass, you're gonna, you're gonna do a, as good a job as any human can do in this position. I have such confidence in you for my work with you when you're ambassador to Turkey. Um, one of the things we're really gonna need from you, should you be confirmed, is candor. Uh, an area that I always find perplexing here is when it comes to Afghanistan, whether I'm talking to state, DOD, or our intel agencies, I get very different, very, very different uh, pictures of what might happen. And so we're gonna really need candor from you. And once uh, one of our uh, lead military officers in Afghanistan sends something really candid to me and I say, I appreciate your candor. And he goes, I'm gonna be candid. What are they gonna do, send me to Afghanistan? So we're, we're gonna need your candor because I think there's a lot of confusion up now about you know the, uh, the future uh, mission, uh, but also what are the likely, likelihood of success? Um, and we need to, we really need to hear from the administration on this. The president made a speech that I think at the top level was fine, but there weren't a lot of details. And then we got a good briefing last week in a classified setting. Members of the Senate did, but like the briefing we got about the ISIS plan, it was in a classified setting. We haven't had public briefings, and this is something that the public really needs to hear. That's more likely to be a briefing in the Armed Services Committee than here, but we can't operate on just on the basis of classified briefings about what the plan is. We, we have to bring the public into this. Let me just ask you one question quickly. What is your perception, as somebody who's really a, a skilled in this area, what is your perception about the arc of progress in Pakistan in fighting um, extremist terrorist elements that are on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border? Or, or, are we going in the right direction? Are we in stasis? Are we going in the wrong, dire wrong direction? Thank you very much, Senator. Um, I think we're going in the right direction, but as with all of these challenges, uh, it's not necessarily always going to be a linear process. Uh, the adversaries adapt. We have to then make adjustments. They adapt again. Um, I've, I've seen this happen persistently through the last three years of, of from Turkey working with our colleagues in uniform uh, on, the, on the problem set in northern Iraq and northern Syria. Um, so, with, so you believe, and, I, and I'll be very quick, you believe we're going in the right direction. It's not linear, so we might wish the pace would be faster. But the way you just said it is adversaries adapt. So to the, to the degree to which we're, we're, we're not going fast enough, you view it as more the adaptation of adversaries rather than any equivocal commitment on behalf of the Pakistani government and military? Um, I, I wouldn't uh, make that uh, stark an assessment. Okay. I, th I think we need both. We, okay. we need to continue to adapt our tactics, uh, obviously outside my lane, but in my right. lane, uh, we gotta continue to uh, mobilize uh, diplomatic persuasion uh, and some pressure on the government of Pakistan to make sure we get the right performance on, on the safe haven challenges. Right. We Thank you for letting me go over, Mr. Chair. No, no problem. I'm gonna go ahead and, and uh, call on Senator Merkley and then Senator Coons. I have to step out to the ante room for a moment. I know that um, y'all work cooperatively with each other. So, Senator Merkley, thank you. Thank you, each of you, for your willingness to serve the United States. Uh, Ambassador Bass, which is more complicated, Turkey or Afghanistan? Uh, Senator, I think it depends on the day. <laughs> 
Well, two extraordinarily difficult uh, situations. Uh, the President has said that we will not dictate to the Afghan people how to live or, or how to, to govern their own complex society. Uh, and that we're not going to be engaged in nation building. Does this mean our in investment in health centers is, is ending? Um, thank you uh, very much for uh, our identifying that aspect uh, uh, of our ongoing efforts. Um, uh, as I noted in, in the outset, um, we are going to continue to need on the civilian side to ensure that we have a government that is capable of governing on the other side uh, uh, of a political settlement if we're uh, successful in creating the conditions that bring the Taliban to the table. Um, from my perspective, a, a, a government that's capable is a government that is responsive to the needs that are identified by its citizens. Um, and to the extent that uh, improvements uh, in health are important to Afghans, uh, so that's going to... Just trying to get clarity on this, this point. Are we planning to continue investing in health centers or, or not? Um, my, or, my understanding, or, it's, or, it's, or you don't know? Uh, my understanding is in the short term, uh, we certainly are. Okay. Uh, Let's turn then to uh, our investment in road infrastructure. Is that is the intention to continue that investment as well? Um, I, I believe for out years that's under consideration by, uh, uh, by AID as they reevaluate priorities and the what, security. What projects are we actually canceling in terms of the president's dictates to no longer engage in nation building? Uh, my understanding, based on my initial consultations with AID, is that they're now uh, reviewing their current portfolio and planning to put some recommendations forward. Okay. But I don't so, have any specifics. So there's no, there's no answer. At this point, it's just a policy idea out there in the air, but, but no concrete plan. It's a okay. Um, we have uh, responded to a few things within Afghanistan that are very offensive to Americans, the widespread child rape by warlords, and also the widespread uh, societal discrimination against women and girls. Uh, when the president says we're not going to dictate how to, to govern, does this mean we're not going to weigh in on those issues anymore? Um, I, I believe we'll continue to express our strong concerns about uh, practices and activities in, in Afghanistan that are outside of commitments Afghans have made to themselves under their constitution and with their international commitments. Okay. Well, so far this sounds very much like our current policy, and we throw in pressure on corruption, which we've been doing forever. There's a few show trials to make us happy, but uh, international organizations say it's as bad as it's ever been or perhaps worse with the strength of some of the warlords. We pressured Pakistan before, in fact, to the point that they shut down the Khyber Pass and we had to airlift and, and turn to Central Asia to import things into our supply chain uh, into Afghanistan. Uh, we say our new strategy is to support the Afghan forces. That's been our old strategy to enable them to do that work. We say, well, we're working to set the stage for a political settlement. That is, in fact, our old policy. So on these five fundamental principles, this sounds very much like a continuation of the existing policy. What am I missing? Um, well, I think you're, you're going to see a renewed focus on uh, the broader regional challenge. Uh, my understanding from my colleagues at the Pentagon uh, is that they believe uh, that notwithstanding the challenges of the past few uh, years, uh, fighting seasons, the Afghan defense forces are becoming more capable and they're taking on more to the fight themselves. Uh, so I think it's a a different fight, if you will, from five years ago. Um, and uh, I think importantly on the civilian side, um, 
we have a government now that uh, wants our help, is willing to listen to us, is asking us to hold them to commitments they're making to themselves. Um, and my understanding is that's a bit different from some of the past dynamics. I'll just note that in terms of pressuring Pakistan on the, on the safe haven, uh, we applied enormous pressure before. Uh, and not only did they shut down our movement of goods into Afghanistan, but they've noted that they've had 50,000 civilian deaths, over 5,000 security force deaths, taking on extremists within Pakistan. That's a higher price than virtually anyone else is, has uh, paid. Uh, and um, our failure to recognize that is, is profoundly offensive to them. And they're also very concerned about the drone strikes that have killed uh, many civilians within Pakistan as, as, as well, at least in the opinion of the Pakistani uh, government. Uh, the, um, the argument has always been, well, we're not going to let Afghanistan be a haven for terrorists. Al-Qaeda essentially long gone down to less than 100 years and years ago. The Taliban obviously control a significant share of the country. They can hold meetings all over the country. But those meetings uh, occur with far less logistical support than terrorists can, uh, related terrorists can uh, have in Somalia, uh, in Yemen, where there's more communications, more access uh, to, to ports. Uh, the um, uh, long and short of it is uh, Afghanistan today, a planning can be held in any one of thousands of uh, buildings. Uh, they control more territory. Doesn't affect whether or not they can hold meetings. Uh, isn't there something kind of uh, missing in our basic uh, theory that we're denying, that somehow our current presence is denying planning meetings from occurring inside Afghanistan? Um, Senator, always hard to, to prove uh, a hypothetical. Um, uh, uh, what I would offer is um, different context, but um, what I've watched over the last three years is what happens when uh, you have ungoverned space that is violent, unstable, and creates new opportunities for even more extreme terrorist groups to take root. Um, and I think one of the most disturbing trend lines uh, of the last couple of years is uh, the creation of an ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan uh, that potentially could inject a sectarian dimension into the conflict, which largely has not been there uh, in the past. Uh, and if we think we have a, a big problem set now, it could get even worse. Uh, so, you know, my answer would be we, we have to continue this effort uh, because I think all the alternatives are even worse for us. But you would acknowledge that there's a lot of ungoverned space that fits that definition right now within Afghanistan? Yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, with the concurrence of my uh, wonderful colleague, uh, Senator Young, I'm going to proceed if that's okay. Duly concurred. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. Um, many of us have uh, competing hearings, and so uh, forgive me for having departed and returned. So many others uh, do as well, and it leads to some of this uh, uneven timing. Um, thank you, all three of you, uh, Mr. Dowd, uh, Mr. Sibrel, and Ambassador Bass, for your willingness to serve our country um, in these important uh, different posts and regions. And uh, Mr. Dowd, when I realized that your wife had served as a Deputy Attorney General in Delaware, I realized I had to come back. I, there was no way I could miss an opportunity to highlight uh, both uh, your passionate engagement in issues in Africa and uh, your wife's uh, dedicated service to law enforcement uh, and to the important work uh, against trafficking. Um, let me begin, if I might, with Ambassador Bass. It's great to see you again. Uh, I respect your service in Turkey, and um, as several of my colleagues uh, have referenced, uh, taking on now the challenge in Afghanistan is one that uh, dwarfs, I think, even the challenge in Turkey. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, 
Um, but one of the things that I, I found striking about the President's address, about our path forward in Afghanistan, um, and was in some ways repeated in your opening statement, um, I think I quote you, we have to make clear to the Taliban they can't outlast us on the battlefield. That is clearly our new conditions-based, as it were, framework. How long do you think the Taliban can last on the battlefield? 25 years, 50 years, 100 years? Senator, thank you uh, for that question. Uh, it's a question just, I think all of us uh, should be wrestling with. Uh, uh, absolutely. It's not meant as a gotcha question. It's no, a no. question I wrestle with. No, and, and it, you know, it's one of the reasons why I welcome this, these exchanges, because these are the right questions for all of us to be wrestling with. Um, a bit difficult for me to answer it at this stage of my preparations, given uh, how much of it uh, is informed by you know, detailed assessments of our analysts and, and our military colleagues. Well, then, in the interest of time, let me simply say that as we work together um, to clarify and refine our nation's strategy with regards to Afghanistan, one of my core concerns is that when we're considering people who live in caves um, and who are deeply dedicated to their work against us, um, I think we would be wise to assume a longer rather than a shorter timeline of their determined uh, unwillingness to negotiate and their commitment to the fight. Um, and I just, I just wish the president's um, call to, to arms for a longer-term engagement had been clearer about that, and I think all of us wrestle with that. Uh, 16 years is an awfully long time to be at war in Afghanistan, uh, but if we are moving to a conditions-based strategy, we might very well be facing a generational uh, commitment. Now, decades after the Korean conflict ended, we still have uh, significant military assets on the Korean Peninsula. It's not that the United States is unfamiliar with long-term commitments. We still have military uh, units on the ground in Germany um, many decades after the end of the Second World War. Um, it is not impossible that we would choose to make a generational commitment to the stability and security of Afghanistan. I just think we need to be more clear-eyed about the consequences of that. Um, let me briefly ask you how you think we might deal with expanding Russian and Iranian influence in Afghanistan as well before I turn to your two colleagues. Uh, so the, uh, uh, I think we have to do two things. We, we have to make sure that we're in constant dialogue with them, notwithstanding some of the other challenges in our relationship with Russia um, and potentially through Russia with uh, the Iranian government or others who are talking directly with them. Uh, to make sure we've got as close to common assessment of what's happening on the ground as we can. Um, and we also got to continue to work to um, ensure that they're putting the weight of their effort behind supporting the Afghan government uh, in this effort, uh, because to the extent they start to hedge or intensify hedging, uh, by supporting the Taliban, uh, that doesn't lead to a good outcome. I, I am, uh, frankly, gravely concerned, um, given the role that Vladimir Putin's Russia has played um, in the North Korean uh, challenge uh, in Ukraine in our recent election, um, that he will choose this moment to actively engage um, in opposition to our interests and our security uh, in Afghanistan, particularly given he is a leader motivated by grievance uh, over the fall of the Soviet Union, and it was in many ways our role in Afghanistan that accelerated the Soviet departure from Afghanistan. So I'd urge you to be attentive to that and um, communicate with us about it. Thank you for your willingness to take this on. Mr. Several, if I might briefly, um, I, while I am grateful for Bahrain's uh, uh, support, uh, partnership with us in uh, military matters and in counterterrorism, 
Um, as a co-chair of the Senate Human Rights Caucus, uh, I'm concerned about the poor human rights conditions, which you referenced in your opening statement in Bahrain. They've imprisoned the country's leading human rights defender uh, for tweets. They've banned the country's largest opposition party. They've jailed clerics who've called for political reform. How will you encourage Bahrain's uh, rulers and leaders to respect human rights? Senator, thank you very much uh, for the question. Uh, this will be um, a very high priority for me uh, in my discussions with uh, the Bahraini government. We do raise our concerns with regard to the specific issues and cases you uh, addressed uh, and uh, maintain a, uh, an ongoing dialogue with the government of Bahrain about the importance of protecting fundamental uh, human rights. It's not. Obviously, these are critical principles for the United States that we raise uh, um, uh, in many of our relationships. But with regard to Bahrain in particular, given the strength of the security partnership, given the, the importance of a strong and stable partnership that must rest also upon stability fundamentally uh, within Bahrain, this takes on a very important uh, role in our dialogue. And I'm committed to advancing uh, that dialogue as I engage with senior leadership in, the, in, the, in Bahrain, in the, in the government. Thank you. Mr. Dowd, I was um, moved to uh, read your characterization of your first engagement in Africa as a, a merchant crewman on a PL-480 uh, cargo ship. It is rare we hear that. Um, uh, Chairman Corker and I have worked to uh, understand and to have a, a positive impact on uh, U.S. Uh, food relief uh, programs, uh, both to sustain uh, Food for Peace in my appropriations role, but provide more efficient alternatives. Um, this is a uh, electronic benefits card um, that's currently being used. I was in a refugee camp in Nigeria uh, just a week ago, and um, there are other models uh, other than direct commodity relief. Commodity relief is appropriate in some settings. Um, other more streamlined electronic uh, relief is, is appropriate in other settings. Any exposure to that? Any thoughts about that on how um, the African Development Bank might accelerate um, the use of more transparent, accountable, mechanisms for the delivery of assistance and aid? Thank you, Senator. That's really a terrific question. <laughs> I, I, I don't, not, not being there, I honestly can't speak to it, but I would make a comment if I may. I, I read, I was very moved by the, your, your trip and, and the chairman's trip last spring when you went to the camps. And I'm sure that was a, a profound experience for you, and I share it, and I, any way that I can encourage or, or lead the African Development Bank uh, to assist in these matters, I'm, I'm there and I would certainly welcome your input and those of, that of your staffs. Well, thank you, Mr. Dad. I, I had a great meeting uh, with uh, Bank President Edesina um, and we had a long conversation about his high five uh, agenda, sort of the five priority items, and I'd welcome a chance to follow up with you about that and other matters of concern. I know I'm now really impinging uh, on my colleagues' good graces. Um, thank you to you, to your wife Lillian, um, for your passion for fighting human trafficking uh, and malnutrition. And if we can work together to find ways to do that that are more cost-effective and efficient, um, that would make me a very grateful indeed. So thank you, all three of you gentlemen, uh, to you and your families uh, for your careers of service and for the service you're about to undertake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, I thank all our panelists, all our nominees, uh, for your distinguished careers and, and for your willingness to continue serving. Ambassador Bass, I, I enjoyed our visit yesterday. I look forward to supporting uh, your confirmation. Um, I just want to reiterate my view that the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan should be based on our national security interests, on the advice of our commanders, and uh, on the facts on the, uh, on the ground. We observed, of course, the 9-11 anniversary 
uh, yesterday and remembered our fellow citizens who were killed. And every year we're reminded uh, we can never again allow the terrorists to use Afghanistan as a training ground and a launching pad for terrorist attacks against our homeland or, or that of our allies. For that reason, I applaud the Trump administration's rejection of withdrawal timelines that are disconnected from realities on the ground. At the same time, we have to be honest that the progress isn't what it should be in Afghanistan, and the American people are right to demand better, to ask tough questions, and insist on more detail uh, and more accountability moving forward. So I will continue to scrutinize the strategy in Afghanistan. I look forward to staying in touch with you as, as I make efforts to do that, Ambassador Bass. Uh, to ensure that this administration has established clear and attainable metrics, milestones, objectives, uh, and so forth. Um, and also to ensure that our diplomats, our development experts, and our troops on the ground have the resources they need to accomplish the mission. So um, I look forward to working with you in that regard. I'm going to turn now to the uh, African uh, Development Bank, Mr. Dowd. Uh, according to the UN, between 2017 and 2050, the populations of 26 African countries are projected to expand to at least double their current size. To state it differently, during that same period, 1.3 billion of the globe's additional 2.2 billion working age people will be in Africa. If there isn't a corresponding increase in jobs and economic opportunities to accompany this increase in population, then we're in trouble. We're going to have a hard time making uh, sustainable progress with respect to development goals, and we're going to see grinding poverty that causes human suffering, promotes instability, and serves as a push factor for more migration crises. Mr. Dowd, how do you believe the African Deve Development Bank can better work with the private sector to create the sustainable jobs that we need and to lessen the predictable jobs crisis that would otherwise accompany the dramatic population growth in Africa. Thank you, Senator. Certainly, this is, this is a profound question. Um, the, the, the focus of the bank, of course, is on infrastructure. The notion is, of course, that led, led by proper and effective infrastructure, private investment would follow. And from that, hopefully, employment to begin to deal with this surging population that you alluded to. Uh, not being in the bank currently, I really can't speak to the effective, effectiveness of these programs, but I can, I can tell you that I will be committed to uh, a cost-benefit analysis, a rigorous cost-benefit analysis, to, to hopefully uh, gain control of these, these infrastructure projects so that they really work. And they're not the proverbial road to nowhere. Is, is there a model you'll be looking to as, as you engage in cost-benefit analysis to determine which programs are working, which ones are not? I, perhaps um, you, could, you could mimic uh, a, a, another module for another development bank, uh, for example. I, I, I don't have a lot of experience or knowledge of, of other development banks. Right. But I know from private development projects what I look for. And there are triggers and effective uh, uh, yardsticks that can be brought to bear, bear that I think might apply here. And I honestly, I honestly can't speak a, hell, a heck of a lot farther about that at this point, uh, not, not being on the ground. Well, your private sector experience may even be more valuable, frankly, um, than um, uh, having worked in or, or spent 
time uh, immersed in uh, development banks. I hope so, so sir. Um, I attended a briefing last week on multilateral development banks. Uh, a number of experts were present, and more than one of the individuals made the point that we have to make it easier for U.S. companies to compete for contracts with development banks, including the African Development Bank. According to our Congressional Research Service, despite our country's contributions to the bank, U.S. firms accounted for only 0.4% of ADB uh, procurement in 2016. In contrast, Chinese firms accounted for over 22% of procurement in that same year. Mr. Dow, do you believe there should be efforts to increase participation by U.S. firms in the African Development Bank? And if so, how do you believe we can make it easier for U.S. companies to compete? Well, I, thank you very much, Senator. I, I, would, I would think this would be a good application for value for money uh, bidding. That is to say, it's not always the lowest bid that is the best bid, but the way things often, often operate, it's that way. And so the Chinese, that's their, that's their forte. Uh, very low quality, cheap bidding. And so perhaps, I hope, we can impose uh, uh, value bidding to help U.S. companies. In addition to helping U.S. companies... That is looking at the entire life cycle uh, of the project, right? Indeed, Senator. And, and another element that you allude to there is um, uh, perhaps even contingency payments uh, for some of these longer-term loans to make sure they're not just wandering off into, into who knows where so that there'd be uh, regular uh, monitoring and accounting and, and auditing of, of ongoing project funding. Uh, as far as uh, encouraging U.S. companies to um, uh, invest and operate in Africa, you are exactly right. The percentage is appalling. And uh, I, I will do what I can to, be, uh, to uh, be a cheerleader for Africa, I suppose, and to uh, meet with, hopefully, and uh, facilitate American businesses trying to do business in Africa. Thank you much, Chairman. Thanks. Thank you, and thank all three of you for your willingness to serve, your family's uh, willingness to be a part of that. Um, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, as you heard from the close of the first panel. Um, to the extent you can answer those questions quickly, we'd appreciate it. I know y'all are anxious to get to the post you've been assigned and the jobs you've been assigned. Again, uh, I think for all of us, it's heartwarming to have people like you who are willing to serve in these capacities, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your testimony today and the preparation that went into it, and uh, I look forward to you being confirmed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The meeting's adjourned.